Hello, everyone. Welcome to Unsafe Space. I'm your host, Carter Laren. And today I'm joined by NC Scout. NC Scout is a former infantry scout in one of the Army's best reconnaissance units, a former NCO serving in both Iraq and Afghanistan. He's the owner of Brushbeater Training and Consulting, which is dedicated to training and enhancing small groups, teams, and individuals in real-world combat skills, improvised and off-grid communications, intelligence, wilderness skills, and advanced marksmanship, a skill set he believes may be needed in the near future. He's an avid hunter, bushcrafter, writer, long-range shooter, prepper, amateur radio operator, and a libertarian social activist. He's also a senior editor at American Partisan, which is a group of individual authors and experts in their respective fields who've joined together to provide solid analysis, how-to, and other information for those interested in holding on to Western civilization. You can follow him at brushbeater.wordpress.com and at americanpartisan.org. We'll put links to this stuff below. Uh, he's also the guy that uh, was responsible for the article that I recently read on a Kofefi break. Uh, I think it, the title was uh, Antifa Tactic Reality Check or something like that, where we talked about the tactics that Antifa has been using. So with all of that, uh, NC, welcome to, welcome to Unsafe Space. Thank you. It's great to be here. So maybe we should start with um, some of this Antifa mob tactic stuff, because I think I found it particularly unsettling because I know a lot of us who think that we pay more attention to our personal safety than normies, and, and maybe we do pay slightly more attention than normies, feel like we're a little bit better prepared. But this was a scenario that happened in Port Portland recently where we had what three or four people who were armed, they were trained, and still the mob got the better of them. Can you just walk people through what happened there? That's correct. Um, so essentially, you had a team of guys who were all uh, combat vets, recent combat vets, uh, Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, one was a Marine. And, the, you know, so they have inherent skills they have instincts it's not their first rodeo so to speak and they get out there the typical mentality you know oh i've seen it all before um i'm you know i'm good to go this is just street protests and you know throwing things or whatever we'll be fine uh they learn very quickly that they're not fine uh and in a fifth generation war which is what i contend we are in the midst of now um, they learned very, very quickly how insignificant even a small team of people can be when the mob is actively targeting you. Uh, they were pursued, they were harassed. Um, they, and to be quite frank, they got, they, they were very lucky that they got out of there with their lives, uh, in light of Jay Bishop of Patriot Prayer, uh, Kyle Rittenhouse, who was nearly a uh, casualty and would have been had he not done what was necessary to protect himself. Um, you know, we, we see this and this pattern of belligerence is going to not only escalate uh, what's well, not only going to continue, but it's going to escalate over time because it has to. Uh, what we're seeing with the left is they have completely rejected any form of traditional authority. Uh, when it comes to 
uh, police departments, for example, police departments, they understand uh, in sociological terms, they understand law enforcement as a symbol of authority and an institution of social control. And so when they say they want to re, uh, defund police, they don't mean that they're going to get rid of the institution of control altogether. They just want to remove that one and replace it with an alternative. Uh, this is why you see out in the streets, you see a lot of criminals and petty thugs and stuff. These are the tactics that they're using. They're mirroring criminal tactics uh, of essentially a bait and switch. I'm going to get your attention one way uh, with a sleight of hand, and then my associates are going to come around the back. You know, it's nothing new. It's just that we're seeing this on a very large scale now. Uh, these are not protests. This is fifth generation warfare that's occurring in the streets, uh, whether it's Portland, whether it's Seattle, whether it's Austin, Texas, whether it is Minneapolis, whether it is uh, Raleigh, North Carolina. It's all occurring in the same way. They are following a very distinct pattern of behavior. Can you can you unpack what you mean by fifth generation warfare for people? Because I don't I'm not familiar with that term, and I assume other people might not also. So, essentially, there are uh, five generations of warfare, or at least as military thinkers understand them. Uh, the first generation of warfare is simply uh, what we would think of in the medieval times, up to the Napoleonic era where one army lines up against another and it's basically just going to fight it out uh, to see who, who the last men standing are. Uh, second generation warfare is essentially the same with uh, modern or at least more modern weapons implemented. Third generation warfare is what we understand as combined arms maneuver. What we saw in, at, towards the tail end of World War One and into World War Two. Fourth generation warfare is essentially guerrilla warfare. Uh, for anyone listening, has been a student of Che Guevara uh, with guerrilla warfare, Mao Zedong, uh, his text on guerrilla warfare, Burt Levy, who was uh, an American who wrote a text also known as Guerrilla Warfare, uh, into the 1960s, 1970s, uh, Carlos Marighella with the mini manual of the urban guerrilla, so on and so forth. This would be fourth generation warfare. Fifth generation warfare, on the other hand, is the mass mobilization of everyone. And the difference that we need to make whether we are studying this academically or, you know, we're out in the streets actively combating this, is that fourth generation warfare is small groups of militants seeking to make themselves look like they're a much larger force than they really are, relying on uh, an extensive support network and a guerrilla underground. Fifth generation warfare, on the other hand, is the mass mobilization of everyone. It's essentially swarming the security force apparatus, and in the American context, that would be the police, swarming them to make it seem like there is a complete mass uprising in the streets that is ungovernable. And if you'll notice, Antifa, whether it's uh, Antifa, whether it's Black Lives Matter, whether it is uh, in uh, the NFAC, the Not Fucking Around Coalition, 
Um, or here in North Carolina, we have NC Born, which is building our revolutionary, uh, building our revolution now. These are all Marxist revolutionary organizations. There is no clearly stated goal with them other than we need to bring down the order of things. When you know, you take any guerrilla movement in the past, whether, uh, you know, perfect example was the IRA. Uh, the IRA and then later the provisional IRA sought homeland rule. They sought home rule in Ireland. And that was a clearly stated goal that had benchmarks towards it. We don't see any of that with Antifa. They don't have a clear goal. They cannot point to one coherent end state of what they want. It's just chaos. That's all they want. Anything that represents the old must be torn down. Um, and so, therefore, anyone and everyone is a target. So when it comes to fifth-generation warfare, it's important to understand that when these people say anarchy, when they say, uh, you know, we're going to take to the streets, we're going to burn things down, we're going to destroy uh, whatever represents the, the maintenance of the status quo, you know, they mean it. The problem is, is that they do not have any sort of plan for what comes next. They don't have a coherent end state. They do not have a coherent plan for rebuilding that which they destroy. Uh, you know, the, the young lady that was in Chicago, who was a self-appointed spokesperson for BLM out there after the uh, most recent riots, I remember seeing an interview with her about a week ago, and she said that, you know, well, it doesn't really matter. We're going to burn and, and steal because we need clothes and we need food and the insurance will pay for it for the companies. Well, she's failing to take into account that what if the insurance policies get canceled? Who pays those insurance policies? You know, this is these are words that are spoken by somebody who's completely ignorant to the reality of how businesses actually run. And she doesn't care to understand this either. That, that's the other thing. There's no point in arguing with these people because they they have no interest in learning how the real world works. Um, and that, in turn, is also what makes them as dangerous as they are. You know, she probably doesn't. My, my guess is that they're throwing out the insurance argument just to placate some people, but they don't really give a crap about whether it's paid for or not. They're just saying it to sound nice. Um, but you know, it's interesting that you say, you talk about becoming, uh, you talking about being ungovernable. I think I've seen in almost all of these groups, they've had signs that explicitly say become ungovernable. Um, <clears throat> right. so, so they're pretty clear about their, their motives, um, or at, the, at least their intention. I guess a few, a few things I want to unpack there. One is you said that everyone is a potential target. And I think that's one of the things that's creating fear in a lot of people because they see these videos of, you know, people at a restaurant sitting there minding their own business and someone, you know, a, a mob coming after them. Now, there hasn't been actual, you know, physical violence against anyone that I've seen in those videos yet, but they've come pretty close. Um, and certainly the, uh, the Danielson murder in Portland looks an awful lot like just a random targeting of a Trump supporter uh, murder. 
And I think I think people are starting to to wonder: Are they literally just going to start attacking people at random? And is that is that already happening? And is that going to get worse? Yes, I'll say it is. And one thing about uh, Jay Danielson or, or Jay, his pseudonym was Jay Bishop, um, about his murder. So it, I would say that it was semi-random. Uh, in the case, just just as the uh, the Antifa reality check, that similar scenario, um, when a small group is separated from the larger group, um, you know, I hate to use the term herd mentality, but it but it certainly applies here. Uh, it, Danielson was separated from his larger group. Uh, Kyle Rittenhouse was the same, uh, and you know, no, by no fault of their own. They, for a lack of situational awareness or, or whatever the case may be, they lost their ability to uh, link up with their group. And even if it is a group of three or four, you know, you're, you're still not talking about a, a huge group of people, especially when you're swarmed, uh, you know, by 10, 12 or, or, or more individuals, as was the case with the Antifa reality check. So... Uh, with the, the murder of, of Jay Bishop, he was murdered by people who were clearly coordinated. Uh, now, was he was he targeted because he's a Trump supporter? Absolutely. I absolutely agree with that. Um, he did happen to be at the wrong place at the wrong time, but they were going to kill someone. Uh, that much is very, very clear to me at least, from watching that, they exhibited a level of training. I wouldn't call it professionalism, but I would call it a level of training. They rehearsed what they were going to do. Uh, the first person struck almost, you know, I, I would liken it almost to the way wolves attack. If you were are to watch... you were going to say that. Wolf. I was thinking about the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, sorry. yeah, yeah. A wolf or a coyote in the wild. If you're able to watch that and say, okay, you know, one is going to go for not the kill, but a glancing blow to slow the target down and make an assessment. The second one's going to come in to try and take the legs out from under it. And the third one's going to come in for the kill. And you're probably not going to see where that kill came from. And that's exactly what I saw in that video. That is exactly what I saw. Um, you know, and... I would say that if people are venturing out to these protests to be counter protesters, um, the biggest thing that you can do to protect yourself is stay with a large crowd and keep, uh, I would say stay somewhere in the periphery of the crowd so that you can keep that situational awareness of what's going on around the outsides, not yeah. allowing yourself to get isolated but so that you're able to pay attention to the conditions, you know, everybody needs an exit plan. You always have to have an exit plan. Uh, nowhere. And, and I've been in some pretty sticky situations. You always plan an extraction. And if you don't have that, if you don't plan an extraction or a way out of a situation in your head, war game it out. How am I going to get out of here? Then you're you're planning to fail. You know, it's interesting. The other thing about packs of wild dogs is if you see them attack a herd, 
they the beginning part of their attack is basically finding someone to isolate from the herd right um they'll right. go after they'll go they'll 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 chase the herd corral the herd and and isolate one of the members of the herd that's falling behind or or is potentially uh they're able to kind of get alone and that's what i that's what i saw in in portland partly was this uh, actually, not just in Portland, but also in in your anti for reality check article, the the idea that like they they they're turning the full force of the mob on a very small right. number of people, and you can do that sequentially, right? You can turn the full mob against right. a few people here, and then a few people there, and then a few people there. Whereas if it was uh, all against all, you might not fare so well. Right. That's correct. That's, uh, that's correct. That's pretty scary, I think. Um, do you, you know, a lot of people said, well, yes, of course, Antifa's trained, they've been training, and I get that there's some training that they do, but I haven't seen them, I haven't seen them uh, exhibit a level of sophistication like this until recently. Like, I I've seen the the crowds, I mean, my friend was part of the the Battle of, of Berkeley, and certainly there was a pepper spray and crowd chaos, and they attacked a few individuals, but... It it seemed more happenstance and and random and chaotic right. than than what I'm seeing now. Well, a lot of that goes to the history of Antifa and the history of the militant left, uh, the contemporary history of the militant left here in the United States. Um, they have an incredible amount of patience. Uh, if for nothing else, I will say that they have an an, an extremely uh, admirable level of patience in the United States. Um, much of what we're seeing now is the graduation of tactics. They knew that they were going to have to get to this point. Um, but before, you know, you can't. You can't just start out out the gate going full force. Uh, you know, you, you they would run the risk of alienating too many people in their base. You know, going back to the Battle of Berkeley, it was very easy for them to go protest speakers at UC Berkeley. That's not necessarily out of the norm. Um, and even they knew that they could get away with it at UC Berkeley and, and some of the other places like Evergreen State, so on and so forth. They knew that they could get away with certain levels of violence and there would be little ramification because the school administrations would turn a blind eye. Duke University here in North Carolina uh, had a, a similar scenario. There was a sit-in in the administration building and it kind of turned a little hectic towards the end. But there was no no disciplinary action taken against the students that were at the hands of it. Um, none. And they knew that they could get away with that. But if they got too extreme, which is where we see them now, if they got too extreme, they would end up alienating their base. And they knew that they couldn't do that. Uh, so they've been very, very patient, especially in these these past three years that Antifa has become a household name. Um, it's been very, very interesting to watch this. But a lot of this, you have to understand that the roots of the militant left, the contemporary militant left, come from uh, Cobain and, or Kobani 
and Rojava in Syria, that region of, of uh, northeastern Syria that is controlled by the Kurds. Uh, it's also known as Western Kurdistan. There was an academy that was set up there where the uh, Communist International Workers World Party had volunteers because Antifa started in Germany. It started as uh, you know the German Anti-Fascist Workers Party. They were sending people there to get trained and fight alongside the Kurds and get combat experience fighting against ISIS so that they would be able to come back home and take their revolution abroad. And so it began around 2013, 2014. They were sending international volunteers there from Europe, and then that caught on in America, and you had a lot of Americans that were going there, a lot of combat vets that were going there, uh, global war on terror combat vets. I know several that went. Um, I was approached to go myself and turned it down. Um, and I could certainly see the appeal. Um, I, I could certainly see the appeal. And, you know, those guys didn't exactly know what they were getting into when they went over there, but they brought a lot of that home with them. And if you look back in the old communist guerrilla warfare uh, doctrine, which is Che Guevara and Mao Zedong, a lot of what goes on in the guerrilla training camp is communist indoctrination. It's political indoctrination because warfare is just one more element of politics and politics is just one more element of warfare to these people. And so we had this influx of Americans going overseas that were going to Rojava to fight uh, and fight alongside the Kurds and the PKK and the YPG, so on and so forth. They came back to the United States, uh, and to my knowledge, most of them are, were back by about 2017. I think there were a few volunteers that were left there around 2018 or so, but they're all back. And um, where did they go? What, what did they do with their combat experience? Uh, what, you know, They're not just going to sit back and let their combat experience go to waste, let that indoctrination go to waste. They're going to do something with it. And that's what we're seeing now is, uh, you know, they're getting out there and behind closed doors, they're saying, okay, you know, this is the next step in what we're going to do. You know, in the protests after the Austin rioter got shot, uh, you know, he pulled a weapon on the guy that, that at the uh, where they had the traffic stopped pulled the weapon on him, guy shot him, and all of a sudden, you know, you, you've got all these counter-protests that were going on with that. Uh, there were a number of known Kurdish volunteer fighters that were rolled up in the aftermath of that, and I know that for a fact. Um, and they had some serious hardware, too. You know, we're not talking about, you know, just some chintzy AR-15 that, that they bought it, you know, for discount at the local gun shop and, and cheap ammo. They actually had a very sophisticated setup with night, very nice optics, day optics, as well as night vision capability, IR laser, suppressor, and everything else. I mean, these guys are serious about what they're doing, and it's going to be a very short period of time before we see a major escalation. Um, you know, 
and even looking back, if if we look back at, at just the still image photos from the Arab Spring of 2012, 2013, 2014, and then Euromaiden um, right before the open warfare in Ukraine kicked off between the Ukrainians and the Ukrainian separatists, the Crimea separatists, um, same thing. You know, they were shooting fireworks. They had the riot shields that they had made that were improvised. They had similar symbology. Everything was very similar. And all of these followed a pattern of the color revolutions, uh, Zbigniew Brzezinski's color revolutions. And here we are. You know, we see that here in the United States. So do you think the next step is that we're going to see more hardware? Because right now the hardware we've seen from the left is like a handgun, you know, that kind of stuff being used. Um, Right. You expect to see more sophisticated hardware. Yes. I Well, I have seen it. I have okay. seen it already. It's just that it did not make it to its implementation. Right. If that makes sense. Yeah. It, 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 but it was there. It's there. It's it just not there. used yet. It was yeah. right. Correct. Right. And there's nothing to say that, you know, this, this thing, you know, it could be prophetic. These guys could do this this weekend. They could do it a month from now. Hopefully they don't do it at all. But if we're looking at, what we see now through the lens of what has occurred in the past, we've got some serious concerns on our hands. You know, what you're saying, the timeline that you're putting forth actually coincides with just my anecdotal uh, evidence of when the left started to suddenly, they suddenly dropped their gun phobia and started encouraging people to go to the range and learn how to use weapons. That coincides with about the time you're saying people returned to the U.S. Right. You know, we uh, here in the U.S., we have a number of armed leftist groups. Uh, we have the Huey P. Newton Gun Club. We have NFAC, which NFAC is kind of a, a recent thing. Uh, Huey P. Newton Gun Club comes out of the New Black Panther Party specifically. Um, you know, they're not necessarily new. But Redneck Revolt and the John Brown Gun Club are two others that are very significant and somewhat at odds with each other as well. Hmm. Uh, Redneck Revolt takes their symbology and their ideology specifically. They they take their roots from the Battle of Blair's Mountain in West Virginia, where coal miners who were trying to unionize Mother Jones— uh, most of the listeners will recognize Mother Jones, the, the big uh, leftist magazine. Uh, but Mother Jones was organizing the coal miners uh, to unionize them. And they went on strike. They took up arms, occupied, the battle, uh, occupied Blair's Mountain, and a battle ensued. And the U.S. Army was actually used to put them down. And so they wore red sashes and red bandanas around their neck to identify themselves. And that's where redneck revolt gets their ideology from and gets Mm. their inspiration. And you can even see this in their logo. They have a skull uh, with a miner's helmet and red bandana with a wrench and a wrench symbolizes, you know, we're going to throw a wrench in the system uh, with a crossed rifle behind it, which symbolizes that we're armed. 
John Brown Gun Club, in turn, uh, John Brown, famous abolitionist, Battle of Harper's Ferry, um, they see themselves as modern-day abolitionists, that the capitalist system enslaves them, that they are enslaved to the system of oppression and systematic oppression, which in turn they, they claim is systematic uh, racism because there's oppression that goes along with it. And there's a lot of graduate-level sociological research that, that goes into this, exploring this at, in depth. Um, but John Brown Gun Club, the, the members of both uh, them and Redneck Revolt advocate armed overthrow of the United States, that as a capitalist society, we are inherently oppressive to women, minorities, uh, marginalized peoples, so on and so forth. And that, you know, the, the actual structure of society, so to speak, needs to be brought down, but it can only be done through the force of arms. Um, so, I mean, these, these are very, very serious people. Um, they are in no way, I, I've seen some outlets on the right that have said, you know, it's, it's the same as the militia movement, but, but for the left, and I'm telling you that it's not, um, you know, the, the militia movement on the right was, may have been something of concern in the 1990s, but today, and I mean, I'm part and parcel of that. I know people that are in, involved in this stuff, you know, the militia movement is uh, the people at least that declare themselves part of the militia movement skewer much older, uh, 20 years older than the redneck revolt, John Brown gun club, uh, Huey P Newton gun club groups that are out there, you know? So these groups are armed and they're young. And it's a term when I was in the army, we use called military age male, military age male is going to be violent with you and is prone to violence because he doesn't have many social attachments. You know, he doesn't have uh, two kids and a mortgage that he has to worry about and a car payment. You know, he doesn't have all those things and it doesn't matter to him. And so that's, we're seeing at that point that these guys are skewering much, much younger. But not only that, if you look at the three people that Kyle Rittenhouse shot, yep. one was a child molester. One was uh, a convicted spouse abuser, and the other one also had a criminal past. You know, they are attracting people with criminal pasts that don't have much to lose. And so for that reason, we, we combine those factors, the intersection of those factors. Somebody who is actively training and arming them and giving them just enough training to be dangerous. I mean, we don't have to make these guys competent trigger pullers and, and working, you know, like, like I would have in Iraq or Afghanistan with my team. All you have to do is make them dangerous enough and they will accomplish the goal in mass. Yep. I mean, do you think that we are in a, I know, so I know you've been, you contributed to a book I know with uh, Sam Culper, also from Forward Observer, and I know he's talked about civil war. I I don't know what your position on the the civil war theory is right now. And I know some people say we're in a civil war already, low level. Some people say we're not, we won't be. Where's your? How, how do you characterize what's happening right now and with with respect to civil war? I would say that we are 
we are in the late 1850s America. Uh, as, as Americans, if, if we look back at the late 1850s period, that's where we are now. We don't have declared belligerence. We don't have, uh, you know, we don't have Antifa out there saying that we declare the nation of Antifa, you know, ex- except for this little Chaz nonsense right. they pulled a couple months ago. But I mean, that was just a flash in the pan. Um, and, and it didn't work and they all knew that it didn't work and it, it was never going to work. But the, that, that's where we are. You know, John Brown with Harper's fate, Harper's, uh, very raid. You had, um, uh, bleeding Kansas, which led to the Missouri compromise. We had banditry on both sides. You had bloody bill Anderson, um, you know, con- pro-Confederate guerrillas, which were pro-slavery, pro, uh, pro-states' rights guerrillas at the time that were fighting against the abolitionist guerrillas from Kansas, back and forth. And, and they were trading blows all throughout the latter half of the 1850s, leading up to the rise of major belligerents on both sides. And so that's where we are. Uh, so do I think that we're in a civil war? Absolutely. You know, we were in the American Civil War was going on about a decade prior to the actual declaration of civil war, the, an actual declaration of war. Um, and it's it continued on in small flare ups here and there after the war in, in the Reconstruction period. And so we're there now. We're in the early phases of it now, you know, you, because you have to think. This generation, this generation of college students, this generation of uh, people that are out there have been groomed by the media, by academia, by literally every outlet they've paid attention to growing up to believe that they're marginalized, that, you know, there's a consensus of science that capitalism is destroying the environment, which is nonsense. Right. right. There's anybody that knows the peer review process knows there's no such thing as a consensus of science. Um, we, you know, they they have been manipulated to believe to this point that the only means left is violence. And that's it. That's all there is left to this is to be violent, is to become violent. Um, and so that's where we are. That That's where we see ourselves. Um, and unfortunately I don't think this train is going to stop there because again, they have not stated a clear cut objective. They don't, you know, aside from, um, a couple of protesters here and there who really did had, have no power or no authority over the larger entity. Um, they have no clear objective. They've never stated an objective. You know, what do you want in the American civil war? You know, we, the, the South wanted to break away from the remainder of the Union. They wanted to form an, their own nation, uh, and, and they fought a war over it. The Irish Revolution and then the Irish Civil War, they wanted one coherent home rule that ruled the entire Irish island. That was what they want, um, and, and that's what they continue to want. When you ask Antifa what is it that they want, all they can tell you is that they want to destroy the system. That's it. Right. And so because they do not have a clear cut objective and they don't have a coherent objective and no one can articulate on their side uh, 
a logical end state, um, we're in for real trouble. This is only going to continue to escalate from there. Yeah, you know what? One of the things you brought up the militias on the right, and one of the things that's striking me as we're having this conversation is that, you know, like the militias on the right or not, we agree with them or not, one one difference I'm also seeing just ideologically is the militias on the right typically had an attitude of returning the U.S. to some sort of principles that they felt were lost um, or the U.S. Right. had gone astray. Whereas the left is ideologically opposed to the the very concept of the United States. Um, and so there's no, like, the, the, the militia on the right kind of died down a little. I'm not sure exactly why, but, you know, they died down. Maybe 9-11 uh, affected people's willingness to, to deal with an in, increasing... Uh, increasingly authoritarian government or whatever. I'm not sure. Maybe they just got old. But on the left, they're fundamentally opposed to uh, the very idea of the United States. And as you're saying, and this gets this is where it's really scary to me, is you've got <clears throat> when you have people who believe that they are in the right. So they view the they view the world as stark contrast between good and evil. They and they view themselves clearly on the side of the good and the righteous and the wholesome and everything else, the entire system and all the rest of us uh, are supporting evil through and through. Uh, it's very difficult to you can't compromise with that and you can't really appease it. There's there's right. a that's a motivation that lasts and is it's that's got staying power. Right. And that I couldn't have put that better. That is exactly where they see themselves. I mean, we, you know, if, if you stand against any one of their ideological standpoints, then you're completely evil to the core. There yeah. is no compromise either. That's the thing. You know, it, it used to be in generations past that if somebody sat across the table from you and maybe they were, you know, on the left end of things – Political discourse was something that could occur. You could disagree with someone. Now, that conversation may not always be the most pleasant in the world, but you could at least dis have a disagreement, and that other person wouldn't want to murder you. But that's where we are. If you yeah. walk on any university campus, any university campus, even Liberty University, which at, at one time was you know founded to be the most conservative in the United States— even if you walk on Liberty University's campus, you're going to find this. You're going to be shouted down. You're going to be told that if you have if, if you have a dissenting opinion on any number of the hot button issues that the left has put up on a pedestal, you know, you're not worthy of life at that point. Yeah. And that is a big difference. That is a paradigm shift in the politics of 2020 versus even the politics of 2000. I mean, I, I remember growing up in the 90s and first hearing the term, you know, oh, that's politically incorrect or so on and so forth that was coming out of the early days of the Clinton administration. And, you know, we thought that that was a little extreme at the time. You know, ah, man, what, what, what is this? This is kind of silly, but, you know. Right. Yeah. And look at what it morphed into. Yeah. Look at what it morphed into now, this censorship, this, this, you know, oh, you can't even think the political wrong thing, because if you do, 
oh, you, you're, you know, you're a Nazi, you're a, a terrible person. You, you obviously, it's A plus B equals F at that point. That you, you are the manifestation of everything that is evil and everything, everything that has been evil in history. Yep. Now, so one counter argument I hear from the right to uh, my pessimism about civil war, uh, because I, I agree, I think we're already in something and I don't think that the train can stop, as you said. Um, right. One counterpoint I hear from people on the right is generally, well, it's not a civil war because the military is not involved. And don't worry, the military is on our side. Uh, I don't believe that. And I'd like, maybe you can convince me that the military is on our side. Maybe not. I'd love to hear your thoughts about how does the military, what's military's role in, in this, if any, and how does that play out? Well, unfortunately, I'm not going to change your mind on that. Um, I have a very pessimistic outlook on that as well. And I'll preface that by saying, uh, for anyone concerned, look at the example that was made of General Flynn. Now, General Flynn is someone I happen to know quite a bit about um, and have had a, a very good personal interaction with. Um, and I know that he is a good and honorable man. And the degree to which he was smeared and destroyed uh, personally destroyed, had to sell his home, uh, is virtually bankrupt. They they threatened this man's son. This man's son, uh, by the way, was commissioning as a lieutenant in the Army at the height of all these things. They threatened his son's career as well. Uh, they, wow. they, his, That's mafia-like. His career, oh, absolutely. His, his career will be destroyed before it even gets off the ground. You know, all because Flynn supported the aims of the Trump administration early on. Flynn saw just how corrupt with Benghazi. Uh, Benghazi was, was absolutely rotten to the core. Yep. He suffered through the Obama years, the purge of the general ranks that occurred. And we, I mean, we know it's no secret that the officer corps of the United States military is highly politicized, highly politicized, but they have turned this now to not just politicizing the officer corps, but the NCO corps as well. <clears throat> For example, and I've used this anecdote, uh, anecdote a few times, but I had a close friend who was a first sergeant, which is an E8. Um, he retired as a sergeant first class which is an E7. He lost a rank. Now, this man was a career infantryman, um, outstanding soldier, you know, multiple tours overseas. He's great at his job. And he got placed in a situation with a female, minority female, who was uh, a marginal soldier. And he addressed her the exact same way that he would have addressed any other soldier that had ever served under him before. And the mistake that he made was that he called her into his office when he said something to her and she mouthed back to him, which is unacceptable uh, in a military organization. She comes in, he slammed the door behind her, uh, basically read her, her rights. She goes down to the sexual harassment uh, and equal opportunity representative, filed a complaint, and in the Army you're just guilty. 
you're not guilty until proven innocent. You're just guilty. Um, there was no real investigation that was done. The buck was passed. The die was cast. And they just, you know, he lost a rank. And then he got forced into retirement. A lot of other guys saw this. They saw putting women in the infantry, for example. They put, you know, women in uh, combat special operations roles. So there's a place for women in special operations when it comes to intelligence gathering or civil affairs, uh, dealing with civilian populace, so on and so forth. That's there's there's roles there for that. But, you know, we have our first female Green Beret now. I mean, you know, special forces, U.S. Army Special Forces job is to train guerrilla combatants in a foreign nation. Right. Guerrilla combatants in a foreign nation don't share the same Western values that you and I do for the most part. They don't respect women. They don't even see women as being, you know, you don't you you shouldn't be here. And so the army's been turned into a large social experiment and they have cast aside a lot of the standards just so that they could push women through so that they can have these diversity roles. So this this poison, this venom has went all the way up the chain because I'll, I'll, I'll give you another example, recent example uh, Spencer Rapone. Spencer Rapone graduated from West Point and had Communism Will Win inside his combination cover of his graduation uniform. He was wearing a red Che Guevara shirt underneath his graduation uniform, and he took pictures of it on his graduation day. Now, God. we can all point the finger at Spencer Rapone and say, look at this communist right here. How in the world could that happen? But I, let me remind you, somebody took that picture. Somebody posted that picture before it got latched onto and became a big deal. He had a professor who was who he took a lot of photos with, who was his mentor and was guiding him around. And to my knowledge, was leading a communist cell right there in West Point. And I'll go one step further from there. Who hired that professor? Right. Somebody hired him. And you can't tell me that he was the only one that thought that way. You can't tell me this. And not only that, what's more concerning is that the case of Spencer Rapone was not simply one of some confused undergrad going to a military service academy and becoming a communist. He was already a combat vet. He served in 1st Ranger Battalion. This guy was in 1st Ranger Battalion as an enlisted man before he was like I was, but that was before he went to West Point. And he had that ideology before he went to West Point. And you can't tell me that somebody didn't figure this out and didn't call it out right then and there. I mean, guys' politics, for the most part, in the barracks, we don't really get into that stuff. You know, I would say that that a lot of your, at least when I was in, your combat arms guys, especially in the more elite units, are a lot of good old boys a lot of, you know, Southern guys, uh, for the most part, you, you get people from all over everywhere, but it's predominantly from the rural South, um, conservative leaning. And in you know, when I worked my way up, got in some more elite units, they were very libertarian leaning too. you know, not, I don't want to encroach on other people's beliefs. So I respect, you know, pretty much everybody as long as it doesn't encroach on mine. And that's kind of where we, we came from as libertarians. And, uh, 
you know, man, it, it, but seeing that though, out and out communist, ostensible communists was very, was very rare and would probably be shunned in my era. And, and, you know, I got out in 2014. So turning around and seeing this and seeing this guy work his way up, um, to being a graduate from West Point yep. and then becoming a second Lieutenant and, and, uh, you know, getting, making his way down to Ranger school where it, you know, his past caught up with him, uh, down there is, uh, every, every infantry officer, uh, worth their salt has to go through Ranger school. And, um, it caught up with him down there. And, and to my knowledge, he's no longer in the army. He was terminated, but how many people are flying under the radar who are just yeah. keeping their mouth shut? But they're implicitly going along with that. I mean, if we look into General Milley, who is the chief of staff, he's the, the, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, rather, I misspoke. He wrote a dissertation uh, for his undergrad, his senior year, on models of guerrilla warfare and Che Guevara. Now, I was a student of Che Guevara because that, because that was important. We needed to... to you know, focus on the fundamentals of how to train and lead a populace who's not trained and then how to win those hearts and minds of the civilian populace when we were training up for Afghanistan. So it was a very fascinating read in that regard. But I'm not going to sit here and tell you I'm a fan of the guy because there's a number of things that he got wrong, but he was also a mass murderer, you know, so and and of I will tell you this too, that, that text that Millie wrote was, you used to be able to, uh, he, he wrote it for Princeton. If I remember correctly, uh, because that is his alma mater is Princeton. It was accessible because it was published by Princeton. It has been redacted and buried since then. And, and that's been in the last six months since it was discovered that he wrote that. So you tell me, there's something to hide there. And, and you know, the the position of the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff is not to be one that is political by nature. And yet he has made many political statements. Not only that, um, I ran a piece that was a critique of two authors, the, the editors of Defense One, who were writing an open letter to uh, General Milley, the, the same General Milley we're discussing here, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, basically saying the day after the election, send the Ready First Brigade from the 82nd to go remove President Trump from office. Well, that's a military coup. And they yeah. explicitly state in this article, they say, oh, this wouldn't be a military coup. This is just them doing their job. This is absolutely a military coup. It is absolutely a military coup. Because the day after the election, we're not going to have a president the day after the election. We're not going to have a clear winner with all of the mail-in ballots and the malarkey that's going on with that. We're not going to have one. You know, anybody that sits there and thinks, oh, the, you know, it's going to sort itself out that night. We're going to have a clear winner. The left is setting it up so that we don't have a clear winner and that it's going to be lawsuit after lawsuit after lawsuit. Uh, it, it's going to make Bush versus Gore in 2000 look like nothing. And then even then, if it goes to the Supreme court, they're going to make the argument that the Supreme court is invalid because Trump got too many picks in yeah. this four years. 
He got too many seats on the Supreme Court. Yeah. So they can't be fair and unbiased. So they, they're, therefore, there can't be a clear winner. I mean, you know, it seems to me pretty obvious that the I, I would expect the the commissioned officers and the higher ups in the military to be basically of the same ideology that general deep staters are right, which is kind of left leaning. But I think that the the hope that people hold out is like, well, the boots on the ground, the NCO, well, and not even the NCOs, just the grunts, the, the boots on the ground are, uh, you know, they sign up because of patriotism. And, um, and they're all really conservative, generally. And so they they'll refuse to obey orders. But I, I don't know if that's based on some kind of old nostalgia that like boomers think is true about the military. But I, you know, based on what I've seen of the young guys joining up and that are in the military now, uh, that's not true either. No, I, I would say at best it's a mixed bag. Now in the combat arms units and you know, the, the, the trigger pullers, the meat eaters, I would say that probably remains true. Okay. But a lot of your salty, seasoned guys are not going to sit there and put up with, you know, females in the ranks and, Oh, Tommy thinks he's Terry today and, you know, can't decide what bathroom he's going to go use. I mean, they're not going to put up with that or, or worst case scenario, uh, somebody's going to get them in trouble and force them out. Right. So we're, we're going to see that too. And, you know, some of my friends that are, that are still in saying, limited cases we do see stuff like that and it's sad it's very sad uh but at the same time you know do you think do you really think that the guys who are uh the good old boys the the trigger pullers the mediators are going to stick around because i don't right you know and and in the obama years when I was in, you know, we, we kind of made jokes about it, but we discussed it all the time. And I mean, the, the big question back then was, you know, is the economy going to go belly up? And, uh, 2008 happened and there's a lot of uncertainty. So for us, you know, heck yeah, we'd leave, you know, we would just leave, but we're, you know, don't think that we're not going to leave and take all our stuff with us. Right. Well, and this is what I've seen happen with the police as well, right? You see a lot of the the police officers who are there for the right reasons and have some allegiance to the Constitution are largely retiring or getting out um, now. And, and they're re- being replaced by young guys who just want a job and happy to be a thug for hire. Exactly. Exactly. And that's why we see groups like Patriot Prayer being blamed, openly blamed in every literally every way possible uh, that that. The, the police are going to use avenues of approach to shut them down when they just simply turn a blind eye to what the other side is doing. You know, oh, well, we're not going to arrest them because, you know, they, they have a right to protest. But as soon as they harm somebody, you know, and, and God forbid somebody turns around and, and defends themselves, oh, well, now we're going to throw the book at them, just like the McCluskeys. Uh, the McCluskeys defending their home in St. Louis, you know, we're, we're going to charge them with literally everything in the book simply because they defended themselves, simply because they defended their home. They did what they were supposed to do. Um, and, and this, this is the, the nature of things, 
But I will say this, in the absence of order, order will absolutely restore itself. This is not going to continue. Uh, people are not going to allow it to continue. And that's one mass uh, overstep that the left thinks that they have much more control. They have, they have a level of hubris that is very, very interesting. They think that they have much larger control over things than they really do. And what's interesting also is that the political class here in the United States thinks that they have control over Antifa and they don't, you know, Antifa, BLM, all all these militant left groups have had a taste of power that no leftist group ever got before in the United States. Yep. And they're going to run with it. You know, they are going to run with that. And so I think in, in the backroom conversations, People like Nancy Pelosi know that their days are numbered. Uh, their days in, in the Democrat Party are numbered. Yep. Um, you know, good example of that, too, is is the mayor of Portland. You know, the mayor of Portland, they, they set fires outside this guy's house and, um, you know, want him gone. And he was literally standing in front of uh, and one of the pressers he did. He was standing in front of a sign that w- had their list of demands, and at the bottom of it was saying him being removed from office. Right. You know, and he can't understand why, because this this is a guy whose whole platform was Bernie Sanders. You know, Bernie Sanders at the local level, and he can't understand why they don't like him. Right. I think a lot of the Democrats who think that they are going to use the radical left and use Antifa um, as a as a campaign tool, which is what they've been doing with every kind of movement for their entire careers. I think they're going to, they think that they can continue to do that with Antifa and the radical left. And I think you're right. Uh, They're not in control anymore. Um, And they're getting used by the radical left, not the other way around. Right. I agree completely. So you, um, you know, the last thing I want to kind of, the last major subject I want to breach here with you is, uh, you contributed to uh, Jack Lawson's Civil Defense Manual, and uh, one of the things that I think is is missing from a lot of self-defense kind of conversations or, or even prepper conversations is the community and the, the need to function as teams and the need to, to cooperate uh, with others around you, and that you, know, you can't just survive... Yeah, the, the, the kind of romantic idea of surviving on your own in a cabin in the woods with some ammo and water is not really going to work. Um, no. And uh, I, I'm wondering if you can you kind of sleep sometimes. Yeah. Can, can you outline can you outline um, kind of what what your neighborhood protection plan is and, and some of the, the things that you think are most important for people to do in terms of community movements? Well, the first thing that folks need to do is be realistic. Um, you know, you don't be the, you know, the, uh, the old movie, the burbs had Tom Hanks and Carrie Fisher and everything in it. And, uh, people were the weird people had the basement with the furnace and everything. Um, the, the weird militia guy was there. I think he was played by Bruce Dern. Um, you know, be realistic. Don't be that guy. You know, don't be that guy that thinks you're going to sit on your rooftop until the apocalypse happens and you're just going to fend off the golden horde. Because, you know, the reality is, is that, number one, doesn't matter how good a shape you're in, 
you're not in good enough shape. Number two, um, you have to be realistic about your capabilities. People, you know, we've all heard the, you know, oh, I'm going to build a bug out bag and stuff. Okay, well, where where are you going to go, number one? Where are you planning on going? Just darting off in the woods is not a plan. Um, number two, or, or well, the, the second half of that is if you're going to build a, a, a rucksack with stuff in it, have a realistic expectation of how much weight you can carry. I mean, it, it, you know, if your ruck weighs 70 pounds and you can't even walk five miles much without stopping, much less uh, carrying a ruck on your back, you're not going to be very successful. Uh, and you don't need to carry everything in the kitchen sink in it either. I mean, this it, is it's ridiculous. Uh, but with that said, be realistic about things. If you are in your community, if you're in your neighborhood, the first thing you need to pay attention to is the ingress and egress points. Um, where are people likely to come in your neighborhood and where are they likely to go out of your neighborhood? Um, whether it's a suburban residential area or it's somewhere out in a rural area or even an urban area, where are people coming in and out? Uh, this is what I call natural lines of drift. It's anywhere that, that there are likely to be humans traveling up and down. And when you identify those, you've taken a gigantic first step in personal security because this is where people are going to approach you. And I call that avenues of approach. If you can mitigate those by closing them off or at least slowing uh, a mob down that's coming in, that's where you have put in your first layer of security. Uh, the next part of that is where are the long axes of observation? So what, at what point in my neighborhood can I see the furthest? You know, if I'm looking down at that, that point of ingress or egress, that avenue of approach, where can I see it the most clearly? And so, all right, how far is that away now? And if I had to shoot at that, can I competently hit anything at that distance? And normally for residential area, that's, that's maybe a couple hundred yards um, at the most, sometimes a little further, depending on the neighborhood. But just those first two steps, just those first two steps are a big leap forward in taking care of yourself, you know, because if you're waiting for them to come to your doorstep, you're already too late. They don't need to come into your house, <clears throat> especially a, a, the mob or, or whatever it is. If they really want you gone, they're just going to set your house on fire. I mean, yep. that, that's all it is. Um, you know, so with that said, I would say the next thing, um, a common question that I get is, how do I approach my neighbors and how do I build a uh, preparedness group or a mutual assistance group, whatever the case is? Well, and the most often easy answer to that is, is number one, don't be a weirdo. Um, be somebody that everybody wants to hang out with. You know, don't be that guy that's like, oh, oh, guys, the sky is falling all the time. And hey, guys, you know, we got to wear a multicam everywhere. Or, you know, don't be that guy. Um, look normal, dress normal, act normal, um, invite your neighbors over. I mean, you know, we're just coming off of Labor Day. Invite your neighbors over, 
for a barbecue. You know, cook something for somebody. Cook some burgers, hot dog, whatever it is. Have a few beers with your neighbors. Get to know who they are. And just drop the question. And don't do it in like a serious end of the world kind of thing. But it's like, man, hey, uh, yeah, I saw downtown. These protests are kind of getting out of control. You know, I don't, I don't want to sound weird about them, you know, maybe coming out here. But what if they did? And see what your neighbors say, you know, see what your neighbors say. Um, and, and it doesn't have to even be political either. Uh, you know, I, I would say in, in most often times, you know, I don't have to necessarily agree with my neighbor 100 percent on everything. But I do have to live next door to my neighbor and my neighbor could help me out. I mean, they might be a dyed in the wool uh Biden, Harris support and just, you know, think that that's just the greatest thing in the world. But if people are coming over to, to burn our houses down, their political opinion doesn't matter so much in that we need to take care of each other. Hey, you know, those political arguments, you, you'd be very surprised at how fast they're going to go by the wayside when you're actually trying to take care of one another. And, you know, it, it all goes to getting along with your neighbors getting to know who your neighbors are and being that guy. Yo, okay. Uh, he, he's a pretty cool guy. Lives next door to me. Yeah. We had burgers, had some beer with him. Seemed like a decent guy. Um, that's all you have to do. That's all you have to do. And from there, if you have extremely receptive neighbors say, Oh yeah, you know, maybe I bought an AR 15 or I bought that rifle or, or whatever the case is, or, or, you know, I've got some, freeze-dried food that I've stored up or whatever. Then once you've broached that topic, you can get a little more serious with these people. You can talk to them a little more, um, you know, but you don't have to be so out the front, you know, oh, guys, we got to prep for doomsday. You know, Antifa, the Golden Horde is going to come destroy everything. It's a civil war. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're not you're not gonna get any. I mean, even today, and I would say that there's a whole lot of people now, just in the past six months, that have woke up to the reality. They're a lot more concerned now than they were before, but they also don't want to be freaked out. They've yep. got everything that's been rammed down their throats. So this politics have been rammed down their throats. I mean, you can't you can't watch sports anymore. You know, none of the none of the athletics you can't watch sports anymore. You can't listen to music anymore. You can't uh, have it, literally any avenue of approach of entertainment anymore without having politics rammed down your throat. And the last thing you want to do for most people, myself included, is have a decent beer, have some decent food with your neighbors and some guy over there discussing politics. Even if I agree with them on most of what they say, I don't want to hear it. You know, I, I hear it enough. I don't want to hear it. So don't be a weirdo. You know, don't be a weirdo and, and don't make it all about about political stuff. But just like, hey, you know, I just want to help take care of take care of the community in case something happens on the communications front. You know, uh, communications is what I contributed to uh, Jack's uh, um, civil defense manuals on. Yeah. But uh I would say with that communications is frequently the most misunderstood topic of them all. 
when it comes to preparedness and communications off grid are, uh, it's a very deep topic. But what I will say for the, the listeners is keep it simple. Doesn't have to be complicated. It, you know, doesn't mean you have to, you know, go go out and become the greatest ham radio operator since Marconi, right? But you know, having a way to communicate off grid is is really a good thing, and it doesn't have to be expensive either. Uh, the Baofeng UV5R, which is a very very simple radio to use, I have many of them that we use in class, um, and it's fairly rugged. I mean, it, you know, it, it isn't the most rugged thing in the world, but, um, I've had people drop them in the mud and, and step on them and, and do, you know, get wet and all kinds of stuff. And they still work fine. Um, you know, go that route and look into some of the license free options. Uh, there's a license free VHF, uh, service called MERS or multi-use radio service. It's uh, five channels. Those bow things are, you can use them on that. Uh, FRS, Family Radio Service, the, the little blister pack Walmart radios, you can program those bow things to use those frequencies as well. Um, and they work really well. I mean, you could, for for uh, about $20 each or so, give or take a few bucks, you can buy several of these and hand them out to to people in the neighborhood that you get to know and say you know all right look this let's just use them as fun make it fun uh and when you make it fun and you're not all about doom and gloom all the time you'd be very surprised at how people want to work with you um it's always worked for me and uh you know that that's pretty much the long and short of it now you can get more advanced from there and we do in class. You, you can get very expensive with it as well. But um, as far as uh, as far as all that goes, um, you know, it doesn't have to be complicated and it doesn't have to be expensive either. That's, that's some great advice. Uh, I appreciate it, Scout. Is there any any kind of last words for our audience that uh, that you think they they really need to know? I would say. First, keep your head on a swivel. Uh, stay frosty. This, you know, to, to all the all my veteran friends out there uh, that that are going to be listening to this, you, you know the term well. But um, you know, be be ready for anything. But also, keep your head up. You know, we get bombarded nonstop with a lot of garbage. With you know, being demoralized and told you're you're bad and you're evil and all this stuff. When we know that that's obviously not the case um keep your head up you know things things might seem dark right now they really might uh, and it's easy to get demoralized when we see all this stuff but there's a lot of great folks out there um this channel being one of them and get out there and train too. train train you know i've i've met so many amazing people being a trainer and i've seen firsthand uh groups that have developed and people meeting each other in a training environment and getting to know others and networking and just all sorts of great stuff blossoming out of that. So get involved in it. And there's a lot of people out there that are conservative Americans that are good people that are God fearing people. And, you know, we're on the right side of all this. We're on the right side of all this. So never, ever lose hope. 
That's a that's a great message, and uh, I will make sure to put a link to uh, Brush Beater in in the show notes so people can go and see what kind of training you offer. But Scout, I uh, I really appreciate your time and your expertise, and it's been a pleasure to pleasure to talk to you. Thank you, sir. It's been a huge honor to be here. The honor's mine. Thanks. Thanks for watching. If you're new to the channel, we have a deep content library that includes interviews with everyone from Mike Cernovich to Megan Murphy. So go check it out. If you'd like to see more, please consider supporting the show by visiting unsafespace.com donate. You can find us on all the major social media platforms, at least for now, and you can find a community of like-minded individuals on our Unsafe Space chat on Telegram. See you there. Warning, this is an unsafe space. Dangerous ideas have been detected. The content of this production has not been authorized by the cathedral. Pay no attention to it. For your protection, the following co-conspirators have been unpersoned and marked for cancellation. Please avoid any contact with these individuals. I have calculated a 94.9% .9 chance that their ideas are more contagious than COVID. If you think about it, no one should be allowed to express opinions. But don't. Think about it, I mean. That's not your job. Thinking has been scientifically proven to be less efficient than compliance. Remain calm. The new group of nine people will enforce the Constitution just as well as all previous sets of nine people have done. Computer voice Curtis, never mind, that last line is fake news. Please disregard it and return to your safe space immediately. There will be cake.